Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by consultant neurologist Dr. Nicholas Silva. Uh, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Dr. Silva has extensive clinical experience in managing complex and refractory headache disorders and runs the headache service at the Walton Centre. Today, um, if it's okay with you, I was hoping to discuss one of the most common primary headache syndromes that we see in the neurology clinic, which is migraine. To start things off, are we calling it migraine or migraine? What's your preference? Does it matter or can it be called anything? Uh, we should probably call it migraine. <laughs> migraine. So uh, there you go. Uh, in other words, choose which, whichever one you like. And, and my, my usual thing I do is I, I choose what the patient says and I go with theirs. And if they haven't mentioned the word migraine, then I don't even know what I say. Right. I come out whatever comes out my head and I'm not sure which one I use, actually. OK. And um, so we'll say migraine for the rest of uh, this podcast. So headache is obviously a very common symptom seen in both the sort of acute ward referrals as well as coming to the general neurology clinic. And um, just to start with, really, what is it about a headache that makes it a migraine as opposed to, uh, you know, one of the other sort of primary headache disorders that you might see? OK, so I think I think the biggest difficulty, and the biggest challenge are that the migraineous features that you see um, nausea, vomiting, photophobia, phonophobia, osmophobia, the increased sensitivity to noise, light and smell, the movement exacerbation causing throbbing. All those features are actually seen in all headache disorders except tension type headache. Um, tension type headache probably doesn't really exist. It's probably the mildest form of migraine in, in my view. So really you see all these features in all sorts of headache, in all sorts of headache disorders, you see it on both sides. So none of them actually tell you it's migraine. All they tell you is the person has migraineous features, which tells you about their migraineous biology. Um, and it tells you the way they're made. It tells you probably what their genetic makeup is. And therefore, people with certain genes probably will have certain symptoms. So maybe some people will have more genes that give them osmophobia. Other people won't, for example. So I don't find the migraine features at all helpful in distinguishing migraine from other disorders. Mm -hmm. It's more about that this came on uh, as an episodic disorder or a persistent disorder from the onset. It's more about whether it can change sides or be on both sides as opposed to one-sided disorders. Mm -hmm. It's more about the behavior. Migraine patients want to go and lie down and be still on the whole. There are, there are exceptions. Children may be agitated and occasionally adults are agitated. But most people um, look as if they want to die. And the, the concept of the wounded lamb versus the wounded lion is often quite helpful migraine they look like a wounded lamb you know you want to go and check they're still breathing because they look pale and, and they're not moving whereas someone for instance with hemicrania continua or cluster headache will be restless agitated and moving around mm -hmm. i don't really think it's particularly helpful with um for any of that um to have um you know to be looking at the specific features in that way yeah. Okay. And um, I think one of your interests uh, is about the non-headache features of migraine as well. And um, what, what are the things that you uh, you sort of ask for, or what do patients report uh, that can accompany migraine? Exactly. So we've just talked about the migraine attack and what's in the migraine headache. But obviously, in an episodic migraine, you have the premonitory phase, um, the early phase. You then may have an aura phase in one in five people. The premonitory phase maybe in forty percent aura in one in five. You have the headache phase, and then you have the post-trauma phase. 
and you can actually get any of those phases in any order. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to follow suit. Some people will get the headache, the aura, although the classical description is premonitory, aura, headache, and postrome. Um, during those other features, during those other phases where the headache is not predominant, you start seeing a lot of other symptoms. So in the prodromal phase, you'll see uh, food cravings, you'll see uh, irritability, low mood, a lot of yawning, often dopaminergic symptoms, craving carbohydrate, feeling dissociated and lightheaded, neck mm -hmm. ache, sensitive to noise or light, um, various different features that give you a clue that migraine's on its way. And then in the postdrome, you often have fatigue. Often throughout the attacks, either whether postdrome or prodrome or in the headache phase, you may get diarrhea and passing a lot of urine. So a lot of those features are replicated when people get more frequent and common headaches. So if people go into chronic migraine and they've got a headache most days of the month, you often find that people have a lot of other features. So typically, I say that typically at least 80% of people get at least 80% of the following, which are fatigue, coat hanger, neck ache with stiffness, tightness, tenderness, and aching across the shoulders, three to four types of migraine-related dizziness, commonest being dissociation, uh, where they just feel dissociated and spaced out, less common migraine vertigo, where during an attack or worsening of headache, they actually feel vertiginous, and they feel often like they're moving or the room's moving or they're on a boat, occasionally spinning. Visual vertigo where pattern stripes, escalators make them feel more dizzy, just like the blinds in your room behind you um, that I can see at the moment. And then some people veer to one side. Um, other features are low, irritable and emotional mood. Memory disturbances are often very much attentional. So it's poor concentration, word finding difficulties, coming out with the wrong worm when talking, wrong word, often putting things in the wrong place. You know, I went to put my phone in the fridge. So that, those are all very, very typical. And then the other group of symptoms, which I noticed um, a number of years ago and before it was first reported, were that a lot of patient, patients report poor quality sleep. And this translates from the premonitory phase of migraine, where they often have poor quality sleep and often get restless legs and in part of acute attacks. Again, the dopaminergic side of migraine. Um, but in chronic migraine, you often have restless legs. And the importance of noting that, um, you know, a diurnal pattern of symptoms, worse towards the end of the day, caused when you're, when you're still alleviated by moving around, often with stiff, achy legs in the morning, waking up groggy and tired, frequent dreaming at night, sometimes twitching, consistent with periodic limb movements. The importance of recognizing that is what actually happens when you get your crystal clear headache free day? Do you still have restless legs and feel tired? In which case the restless legs may be driving the headache and may be worth treating in its own right. If you have absolutely none of that on crystal clear headache free days, then you treat the migraine because the migraine is probably driving the restless legs as part of the migraine. So it's complex relationships, mm. but you can only really get this from really trying to take a detailed history and really probe these things. And we'll, we'll get to your, how you approach the history in a second. In your experience, I mean, are these symptoms that patients will volunteer or is it something that you actually have to ask quite specifically about? Yeah, you have to ask quite specifically. My first ever lecture I gave to the Walton Centre, I got into a bit of trouble with this um, because I started looking up um, torture racks and thumb screws and it took me to some rather dubious sites, um, which were not the sort of thing I'm into. Um, but yeah, basically you do need to get your torture equipment out. You need, you need your thumb screws. You need to push patients and it's all very well hearing what they want to say, 
and you do you do need to hear what they want what they need to say you do ne- you do need to let them tell you their, their story but i try and keep that bit very brief and then i try and probe the very specific points i want to, to get to make or break the diagnosis hmm. because it's all about it's all, all about trying to look at the various hypotheses and you know for me if i can get the history that someone has attacks which happen at a certain time each day that come on soon after waking that they're restless and agitated and have very prominent cranial autonomic disturbance things they may or may not tell me i know that's cluster headache um mm. so you can really probe the individual syndrome so you need to have a good handle not on migraines diagnosed migraine but also on the other syndromes yeah particularly uh, hemicrania can be sunk um cluster headache paroxysmal hemicrania and trigeminal mm-hmm. neuralgia and if you know those ones then then you're you're able to sort of probe between them quite well yeah. And then, um, so what is your approach to, to a patient who, whose main complaint is of headache? How do you, how do you structure your history? Yeah. So I think um, the first thing I want to do is, I mean, I, if I sort of go to the actual structuring of it, um, I want to know their background. I want to know uh, how they're made. So I will start off just by finding out a few things about them because then it, it personalizes the history. And also you find out how it's impacting, you know, the job and they're off sick and who's at home and others single mum or whatever um, I then look at their past medical history because if you don't know the past medical history everything else may be completely changed so it's all very well taking a history of headache and then finding out afterwards that your patient's just been in hospital for three months with sepsis and they've got HIV and diabetes and they've been found to have a terminal lymphoma you know that's a different history to someone who you're going to just take it from who's a who's just finished off work because they had a few headaches so I get the past medical history. In particular for past medical history, I want to know about asthma, about hypertension, about vascular disease. I also want to know about renal calculi or glaucoma or any family history of renal calculi and glaucoma because we may want to use drugs like topiramate. So I'm thinking ahead about what I'm going to be using in these patients and what might contraindicate. When I actually, I get the patient to tell me what their main symptoms are as a list, just one or two words each and put them in a stratified list, the worst thing at the top. I'll get them to tell me a little bit about what's happened and, and their story, but I'll usually stop fairly quickly on that. And then I'll go to a more pointed history. The first thing I want to know is when, you know, I'll, I'll go to their background before this all started, were they a headachey person? I'll try and get out from the history, whether they've had migraine or not. I'll look at the migraine predeterminants, travel sickness and back of cars, boats or buses, especially as a child, um, irritable bowel syndrome, Raynaud's, undeserved hangovers, family history of headache, all those can tell you that someone has migraine biology. So that's useful, but it doesn't really tell me, because migraine is so common, it doesn't really tell me what the current headaches are going to be. So I'll get the migraine predeterminants. I'll look at their past headache history to see whether they have a history of episodic migraine or another headache disorder. And then I'll ask them, what, in their opinion, when did the new headaches actually start? Not when did they get worse, but when did the new problems start? In particular, I'll look to see if they had a new daily persistent headache or an episodic headache from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Was there something that came and, uh, you know, to some extent, even if it's very, very subtle, has always been something wrong in one side of your head or both sides of your head ever since. And that's a really useful thing to know. I'm trying to get out the hemicrania continua and the new daily persistent headaches and occasionally cluster headaches that feature in that way. I'll then ask whether the headaches have been, I'll ask the site of the headaches and I'll ask whether it goes into the jaw or the teeth or the nose or the neck, because patients like it when you recognize what they're going to tell you. And they, they think, oh, he knows what he's talking about here. Um, 
but I'd also want to know the side. I want to know whether it's strictly on one side or whether it's always worse on one side or whether it can fluctuate and be more severe on one side or the other. That latter one is usual for migraine. It's very mm-hmm. rare in migraine for someone who has always had it worse on the right side or worse on the left side. It's never been worse on the left. Occasionally we see people like that. But that does make my ears prick up towards the trigeminal autonomic cabalgias when we see a, a side locked or a side predominant headache mm-hmm. or a headache which has come about for say three months on one side and then it came two years later with five months on the other side. That's the headache. Mm-hmm. So I'll look at the I'll look at the sightedness. And then I'll look at the behavior during the attack. So I'll look at whether they're restless or agitated or whether they want to lie down and be still. Um, you know, clearly if we've got someone with a fairly bilateral headache with gaps and they're getting times when it's times when they're completely crystal clear and times when they're severe and times somewhere in between and this can be either side, then we're going to pers- pursue the diagnosis of migraine rather than the trigeminal autonomic cathalgias. We've, we've, we've got over that hurdle now. And we can focus on the migraine features. We can go through all the things we just talked about previously. We can look at the nature of the attacks. I like to know the, the sort of frequency. Are they, how many crystal clear headache free days do they have? How many um, mild headaches? How many moderate headaches? How many severe headaches? You know, severe being days when you can't function, moderate days when you don't want to function, but you can carry on, mild days when you can forget about it, clear days when you've got absolutely nothing, you're normal. Um, so I'll look at those. I'll look at what they're doing for the headaches. What are they taking? I'll also look at things they're taking which they don't realise might have an impact. So caffeine intake in particular, sometimes alcohol. Smoking is important to know about because they're going to be high-risk patients for stroke if they've got migraine with aura and they smoke. Um, you know, I'll look at some of the other factors dependent on that person's history. And mm. I'll look at, then I'll usually go on to what have they tried? What acute attack treatments have they tried? What preventative treatments have they tried? Did they use them correctly? Did they actually use it for the right duration? Did they try and build it up to the best tolerated dose or did they stay on a dose of topiramate which made them like a zombie for two, two months? That's never gonna work. You know, or did they get to a dose of 10 milligrams of amitriptyline at night, which was probably not enough to work? You know, did they really push it up to the best dose they could really well tolerate, keep it there for three months and see if it, gave, you know, if it had a chance to work? On a background, usually, you know, were they taking a lot of painkillers or caffeine? Because if they were, that would stop the preventatives from working. Or, it, you know, the typical patient who said, well, I took, I took propranolol and it seemed to help me for three months and it stopped working. That's a very typical story for someone with medication or caffeine overuse. Hmm. One of the, 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 well, the general public in general do tend to emphasize about dietary comp- um, influences on migraine. But that's something that, I mean, I've found in clinic rarely seems to come out that, you know, or I have chocolate and then I get a migraine or I have red wine and get a migraine after. Is that something you, you yeah. also find or is it, is it, do you think it's overemphasized? It's completely overemphasized. And I think in, in reality, probably about 2% of people will get, um, 2 to 3% will probably get uh, triggering by garlic or citrus fruits. Probably about 2% will get triggered by monosodium glutamate. Quite a lot of people will get triggered by, hang, by you know, alcohol. And, you know, for that, you have to find the right alcohol for you. You know, you may, you may not manage a certain type of red wine, um, but you can manage a certain type of white. And it, you know, maybe it's a, cha- a question of changing to, um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from a, a whatever. Chab- I, d- I don't know my wine. Um, I wish I did. But, um, but yeah, so you, you sometimes you find the right alcohol for you and it's okay. 
in reality, what, what's actually happening, and there's been some quite good research there, people often blame the early parts of their migraine as a cause. So I got overtired, therefore I got a migraine, premonitory feature of tiredness. The migraine had already started. Um, I went into very bright lights that day. I think it triggered it. You know, your brain is already sensitized. You've already got photophobia. You're in the premonitory phase. Um, so there are various different things that people have. I, you know, I had cheese. I got a migraine. But did you crave it beforehand? Well, yes, I often crave foods before the attack. If you look at the functional imaging um, and you look at proper diaries that are very, very much, um, you can't change, you can't, you know, electronic diaries that people do and, and take them, you know, prospectively forward, you see that um, there's very good evidence that the, the triggers actually match, uh, the so-called triggers actually match what's already, you know, part of a premonitory phase. Um, and patients just often just don't get that. They often don't, don't, don't see that until it's pointed out. Okay. And um, this is a bit of a leading question, but, uh, and we, we deal with the sorting out the secondary headaches from the primary headaches in another podcast. So I definitely don't want that to be the focus here. Uh, but a term that is often used in referrals to neurologists is a thunderclap headache. Um, are you able to emphasize just to us what, what you regard as a thunderclap headache and how people might get that, might make that mistake with severe migraine? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. That, And I think it's not so much making the mistake with migraine that worries me. It's a mistake making it with non-epileptic attacks, subarachnoid hemorrhage and stroke and things like that. So I think of the subarachnoid hemorrhage as a headache which comes on at its worst at the beginning. And it, it usually in most patients will feel pretty severe as, you know, people often talk about being hit with a bat. Um, actually, we don't, funnily enough, in England and in Great Britain, we don't talk about being hit with a bat. We talk, we, you know, like a cricket bat, we talk being, about being hit with a baseball bat. So I think a lot of this has been, you know, in, induced by discussions that have been held elsewhere and people are, you know, using the wrong terminology for, for Great Britain sometimes. <laughs> but I think one of the biggest problems is that when someone says I've been, I felt like I was hit with a bat, what you need to disentangle, because I looked at this on, on ward consults, and I think about 50% of patients mean I felt that this, this was so severe that it was as if I had previously been hit with a bat and this was a sequelae from it. And the other 50% felt as if literally someone had come and smacked them on the head with a bat. They could feel a sudden onset headache. Hmm. So I think you really need to know what the language is that your patient's using. And you, 50% of the time when they say, they say that they've been hit, felt like they were hit with a baseball bat, they just mean it was the severity was that severe. It didn't, they didn't, the onset didn't come on suddenly or within two or three minutes, which is what you want. Hmm. And I think that's one really useful thing when you go and see someone who you think may have had an atypical stroke or a subarachnoid hemorrhage but or was it migraine worsening when you actually look at that you look at the onset but you also look at the prodromal phase so if you see patients who have had fits or strokes or, or subarachnoid what were they like in the day or two or three days beforehand were they getting tiredness irritability yawning craving food diarrhea passing a lot of urine um you know sometimes you find the patient was not at work why weren't you off work why weren't you work? well I thought I had the flu I just felt very tired and achy you know there you go something is already there mm -hmm. leading up to probably going to have been a migraine rather than a, a rupture of a blood vessel so I think I think looking at looking at thunderclap in those ways can be really helpful yeah and then um finally before we go on to talk about the, the management of three cases that I just wanted to go through and um, how do you classify migraine? You've kind of alluded to this a little bit already, mentioning terms like episodic and chronic, but what, what, are, the, what are the distinctions between those? 
Yeah, so I think um, if you're going to, you, you know, the official classification is really the IHS classification, you know, it's four to seven to two hours. They talk about unilateral headaches. I don't think that's particularly useful. They talk about pulsating headache that's at least moderate to severe. Um, they talk about movement exacerbating and the presence of nausea, vomiting, photophobia and phonophobia. And as we've just talked about, that's all pretty helpless in actually getting you where you want. And it won't distinguish from the other primary headache disorders and it won't distinguish from the secondary headache disorders where you're looking more at, at other features, other features of raised or reduced intracranial pressure, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So those, that, you obviously need to look at that. You want to find the features that are there, but um, when you're looking at, at classifying migraine, I think the more important classification is the actual frequency component. You know, is this episodic migraine? Is it of low frequency or high frequency? You know, low frequency might be, say, three, four, five days a month. High frequency is getting up to sort of eight to 10 days a month. Um, and then we've got this artificial cutoff for chronic migraine, which is 15 days a month, where you suddenly get this new diagnostic label. You've got 15 days a month and eight days are severe. Therefore, you have chronic migraine and it's not accounted for by a better diagnosis like medication overuse headache. So I think I think it's difficult when you're looking at the frequency. Mm -hmm. you, need, you need to be aware that for some patients, a low frequency headache may be extraordinarily devastating to their lifestyle and their job. And in fact, you know, having two days off sick a month can be, you know, can actually put you in more trouble with work than having a regular daily headache and having six months off work. You have to look at the individual circumstances. Mm -hmm. But I think when we classify, we also ought to look at, um, you know, if we're thinking it's migraine as a diagnosis, are the predisposing factors for migraine? It helps if there are, but it doesn't help if they're not. Are the known triggers when they were getting the attacks, you know, menstrual headaches are often um, migranous, headaches a day after alcohol are often migranous, whereas within an hour and a half are often cluster headache. You're looking at the pattern of attacks, you're excluding the red flags, and you're just making sure that there are no other features of the primary headache disorders. Excellent. So um, I'm going to discuss three cases with you. Um, uh, before we launch into them, though, what are the general principles you're, uh, you're giving to your patients that have a diagnosis of migraine? What, what are the, the kind of the lifestyle measures that you, you want to be emphasising? So if I'm allowed to shamelessly publicise the Walton Centre NHS Vanguard um, Comprehensive Migraine Guide, which is actually it's on, um, it's on the right care pathway and on other pathways in the UK. But it's basically www.bit.ly slash migraine booklet um you can probably put that up as yeah. a little uh, you know would it, and that's ly as in ly isn't it right ly so www.bit.ly slash migraine booklet but that's that's a guide i wrote for patients for gps for specialists for everyone you know i think we should all sing from the same hymn sheet there's no you know john at the beginning we were talking about whether podcasts were, you know are these podcasts going to be more relevant as medical students or registrars, I think it makes no difference. We're seeing the same patients. We're still formulating the same ideas and same management plans. It's just that the registrars are let loose to do what they want and the, the medical students are, um, you know, on a long leash, thank God. Um, I'm only joking, by the way. Um, both my, both my um, or two of my children are medical students and they, they already know more than I do. So it's, it's quite worrying. But from this perspective, you really, you know, it's really helpful to have a, a, a set of of guidance that everyone can read and everyone can follow. I think the first thing I do with anyone who's got more than just occasional migraine is I look at lifestyle. The five things that you can change, you know, you can't change the weather, you can't change stress, you can't change your partner, or well, maybe you can, um, but I'm not recommending or advocating that. Um, 
what you can change, you can drink three litres of fluid a day if you're an adult, you can eat regular meals without missing them out, and you can go to bed and get up from bed at similar times each day. And that, that's something that, um, that should be within your ability to do. The quality of your sleep may be altered, and, uh, and we mustn't forget to look for sleep disorders. So I always look for restless legs in patients, and I always look for sleep apnea. And also I look for other things that happen in your sleep, like being poisoned by carbon monoxide, you don't want to miss a free, you know, a daily headache disorder and then find that your patients died. Um, and, you know, simple things in the history. Did it disappear when they went on holiday? Does it affect anyone else in the house? Those sort of things um, you can look for. But we want to, once we've excluded the sleep disorders, just making sure patients get in and out of bed at the same time. But the, the two biggest things out of these five lifestyle factors are stopping caffeine completely. So no um, coffee, tea, green tea, Cola, chocolate, Lucozade, um, Iron Brew, WKD, whatever it is with caffeine in it. White chocolate's okay, decaf versions are okay. And the, the other biggie is uh, avoiding medication overuse. Now, I'm a proponent of actually, you know, if I see someone with frequent or, or a lot of migraine, I would actually stop painkillers and acute attack medications and trip towns. I would warn them that like caffeine, simple painkillers will cause them to get worse for a week or maybe the second week they'll be a bit groggy but not, not as bad. And that for opiates, they're gonna get six weeks, six weeks rebounds and particularly the first two weeks are gonna be horrific. Mm. And you know, if they're on a lot of opiates, we don't stop those suddenly, we reduce them gradually. But I warn, you have to warn them what, what they're heading for and, and use that to actually reinforce why they're gonna get better. So. If they're stopping something, you know, if, if every time they hold a paracetamol in their hands, it might help them for three hours, but then it's going to bring on headache for the next week. They need to know that. And the rebound just confirms that, that what they took when it wears off makes them worse. Mm. So those are the five things of lifestyle um, that I think you, you know, that's a general rule with anyone. And I, if you imagine it as a foundation, like building a building, you put the foundations down and I use a lot of analogies to patients, you know, you're moving into an old house that's been derelict for 30 years before you go and decorate it and put seeds in the garden you're going to actually strip all the wallpaper off you're going to put in a new damp course you're going to strip out all the carpets you're going to clear out the mud and bricks and overgrown garden and then you can start painting and planting and unless you get all this out of the way first you're just mm -hmm. not going to get anywhere with the preventatives they'll get you know the amitriptyline is like planting bulbs in a garden that's already overgrown by weeds they're just going to get it's going to get strangled it's not going to work it's not uncommon patients might tell you they take the painkillers for other reasons other than the headaches. Um, I'm trying to think of yeah. sometimes, you know, conditions like fibromyalgia, they might be on the painkillers. I mean, is that a difficult discussion or how do you approach that? I, I think it's, it's becoming an easier discussion now that it's recognised by pain physicians and NICE that painkillers and uh, gabapentinoid drugs are not recommended for primary chronic pain syndromes. They're not recommended for low back pain. They're not recommended for fibromyalgia. And I think the reason for that is that your brain is always trying to reverse what you're doing to it. Um, so if you give drugs and don't have an end date to them, you'll find that that drug actually becomes counterproductive and the patient may get worse. A good example is giving a bit of pregabalin, best drug you can ever give to get someone to, to sleep properly. It gives you proper quality sleep. It gets your sleep cycle restored. Um, you know, unlike amitriptyline, which coshes you to sleep and is an awful drug if you've got sleep problems. Um, but what happens if you leave someone on pregabalin? If you give if you give it for over eight months, over a year, you'll find that their restless legs and their sleep become worse again. The brain is always trying to return back to a neutral state. 
So I think it's really important when you're taking drugs that you actually have time limits and that you, um, you know what you're doing with them yeah. from, that from that perspective. And again, with, with painkillers and things, you, you just don't, if you're gonna take them for chronic pain, you're gonna end up rebounding. Um, there has been a really good set of studies, the headhunt studies, and I think they showed over 30,000 people or somewhere around that amount, that the people who had the highest risk of um, severe chronic pain were those who had um, a headache disorder and were using painkillers. Mm. So that was patient to a lot of those with back pain and primary chronic pain. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I think you have to tell them. We're, first of all, we're trying not to make them worse. Yeah. But the difference between fibromyalgia and migraines, once patients have fibromyalgia, you cannot get rid of it. It's going to be there. Whereas migraine, even when it's chronic, you can turn it off and you can be really successful. Excellent. So those are the, the lifestyle measures. And uh, now moving on to the cases. So the first patient you're seeing in the headache clinic is a 36 year old female who has no significant medical history and she's not on any regular medications. And she reports an episodic headache that's become more problematic over the last year since she switched jobs. So on average, she reports one head headache a week, which typically lasts anywhere between one to, sorry, one to two days and is associated with feeling sick, light sensitive and a bit unsteady on her feet. She knows a headache is about to start as she becomes aware of a visual distortion affecting her right visual field. If possible, she'll take a couple of paracetamol early on into the headache and try and sleep it off, but will often vomit the paracetamol back up. Afterwards, she can feel hungover, in her words, for a day or so, uh, in, but in between the headaches, she denies any headaches at all. Her sleep pattern is a bit erratic since switching jobs, and she's also got very high stress levels. Prior to a year ago, she'd only get infrequent headaches, usually timed with her menstrual cycle. H how would you classify this headache? Yeah, I think if you just go back through the history, so it's a youngish woman, um, and obviously we've not got any other symptoms or signs reported of anything more sinister or worrying, um, which is just important when you're looking at these. And, and I like the fact that she's got headache-free days. I always think that nasty things don't take days off. So, you know, if you've got a brain tumour, that's building and growing, you probably expect to have symptoms on a daily basis. So that, that's reassuring. Mm -hmm. What I think the big key here is the fact that this has been starting to get more. Originally, she had what sounded like a menstrual headache. So the menstrual trigger makes me think of migraine. Uh, that's the commonest one that's menstrually triggered. Although we do see menstrual worsening with other disorders, migraines are the most commonly seen there. Um, the headaches are typically 24 to 48 hours, which is, is banging the time point that we see for episodic migraine. But, you know, episodic migraine attacks can go up to 72 hours or longer. Mm -hmm. uh, so don't, don't be put off by the duration. If she was having attacks which were only lasting three or four hours, so you start thinking about other disorders such as cluster headache. Um, but these are typical for the duration. She's got nausea. She's got light sensitivity. The unsteadiness on her feet is very typical for migraine. You often see that with migraine vertigo. And I suspect that if you asked her, she'd have a bit of either dissociation or possibly some proper vertigo. And the other thing is that um, she knows a headache's about to start, but she gets a, a sense of visual distortion affecting the right visual field. I'll try and clarify that with her just to make sure that it's, you know, it's either shimmering or zigzags or moving. But generally, it's an intermittent visual distortion. It sounds as if it's going to be aura. You may even be able to wean out of her some uh, premonitory features, mm. um, as we talked about before. Um, she takes the paracetamol. Importantly in the history, she vomits the paracetamol back up. And when you're thinking about the history, and where you're going to go with management, that's that's a little thing that you have to think about. Well, you know, if I'm going to give her tablets, she might not actually manage to absorb them. Mm -hmm. 
The post-stromal phase, she feels hungover for a day or so. Again, in keeping with migraine. So everything here is telling you that it's migraine. Um, but there's a slight red flag that's becoming more frequent. And that mm. tells me that probably if we probe further, she's going to have either some caffeine in her diet or she's going to more likely have some medication overuse. Mm. So now that they're lasting 24 to 48 hours and she's feeling hungover the next day, you know, realistically, she may be taking painkillers just for this three times a week. And that might be why she's rebounding and going into the next one, you know, within that, within the week of that. So I would classify this as episodic migraine, mm. but I would note that it's increasing frequency and that increasing frequency is the biggest risk to her becoming a chronic migraineur and potentially mm. less treatable. Okay. And um, I presume you, you'd obviously go through the lifestyle measures as you, you mentioned before. Um, in terms of pharmacological options here, so I guess there's the two components to this. You've got the what she does on the headache days and then, you know, the pros and cons of a preventative. So for the acute attacks, um, what advice would you be giving her? Well, just, just before we come on to the acute attacks, obviously we'd lay down a foundation of lifestyle. We'd do that. We'd stop caffeine and painkillers and we'd do the other things we've talked about. But also, I just want to make sure that she's not got restless legs. She's a young woman. Um, she has had previous menstrual migraine, so she's probably got a menstrual cycle. She may be losing iron. Interestingly, people often go to their GP and they're tired and they're found to have a low ferritin, but their haemoglobin is pretty normal. And the GP says, oh, or the, maybe the haemoglobin is 11.8 or something. And the GP says, oh, you're a bit iron deficient. That's why you're tired. The reason they're tired is usually when you go in the history, they've got restless legs induced by low ferritin, low iron. So you treat the iron and they stop being tired. But if you look at them, you've actually treated the restless legs. So that's a little aside there, but, mm. but I would just make sure I hadn't, hadn't ruled out that here. Mm-hmm. And then again, I think you, you fall into a slight trap of saying, what's the pharmacological management? And I think what I would say is the, measure, the treatment with uh, preventative, certainly even acute attacks, is changing from pharmacological to non-pharmacological for you know, many patients. So mm-hmm. in acute attack treatments, you could either um, go for the traditional approach. You would give a, um, a triptan or a, a simple analgesia, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, something like aspirin, 900 milligrams. You'd give it solubly if possible, so it's absorbed quickly. You might want to give paracetamol solubly, but the chances are that she'll vomit that back. So you're going to want to give something that works quickly to stop her vomiting. Now, stem is very good because you're not going to vomit it back up. You're going to hold it under your lip and it's going to get absorbed. Buccostem, you need a bit of caution in someone who's getting more frequent headaches. You don't want them using it too often because they'll get extra pyramidal side effects. So I limit them to two days a week, maximum two doses on those two days. Um, Buccostem doesn't really hit the right center for vomiting, but it may stop them vomiting. Domperidone is much better because it actually works against the gastric emptying. You know, a lot of people on their way into migraine are burping and belching because their stomachs stop moving. And that's why they vomit things back up. Um, so domperidone would be excellent if it didn't have problems with the QT interval. Mm-hmm. So I usually go Buccostem. If it's not working, I might go very low dose domperidone with a, a normal ECG, uh, 10 milligrams. But we, we have a bit of caution on that. And I would probably give a triptan that works um, parenterally. So something that's absorbed either, you know, um, um, a, a melt, mesotriptan melt, or triptan nasal spray. If I'm going to give a nasal spray, I'll tell them to tip their head forward and keep it forward for a couple of minutes and do what it, do the opposite of what it says on the box. And if you put your head back, it just rolls down the back of your throat and it gets denatured before it actually gets absorbed. So I'd give one of those, I would probably go for one of the triptans, a uh, visa triptan melt or a, a, yeah. a, 
Dermatrypsometrate and nasal spray and uh, uh, buccal stem to start with. And then I might add a bit of uh, soluble aspirin. That's the acute attack management. But in many ways with her, I'd rather actually limit that so that maybe she's only doing that maximum once or twice a month. You know, the real emergency where she's really going to struggle without it, because otherwise you're just going to perpetuate the medication overuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would want to look fairly quickly at a preventative if the lifestyle measures haven't actually helped her, because 40% of people will be back to their previous migraine pattern when they've cut out painkillers and caffeine. Yeah. If we're going to go for preventatives, I think a preventative of four groups is, is non-invasive nerve stimulators. I mean, there are invasive stimulators, but we don't use them. The non-invasive nerve stimulators, there are tablets, there are injections that you can give around the head and there are injections that you can give systemically in the body. The injections around the head, Botox or nerve blocks, the injections systemically in the body, we may talk about in a moment, but those are generally reserved for patients who are really struggling and have been refractory to more simple measures, partly because they're very expensive. Mm. Botox hasn't been proven in episodic migraine, but probably does work uh, in high-frequency episodic migraine. CGRP monoclonal antibody therapies like arenamab and galcanesumab are available. Certainly galcanesumab is available for, for episodic migraine now. But if we give everyone galcanesumab, we'll bankrupt the NHS and we haven't got enough doctors to actually see the patients to do that. Mm-hmm. So we have to be, be you know, realistic. What do I do personally in patients? I, I always put to them the, the idea they can use Kefali, which is a trigeminal nerve stimulator. Disadvantage, it costs about £330. And if it, but if it doesn't work within two months, they send it back, they get about £280 back. If they are using it, I think it, it helps significantly in about 60% of people. And you can use it in acute attacks like an electronic painkiller. So I think Kefali, you know, is the ideal starting point with these. It's not a drug, you're not poisoning. Every other preventative we give poisons in some ways. Amitriptyline destroys your sleep. Propranolol causes problems with fatigue and nightmares. Bisoprolol is a bit better tolerated. Topiramate, I think, gives side effects in about 80% of patients with migraine, cognitive mood and memory. If you get those, you know, any of these side effects, the drug's not going to work. Hmm. Um, and you need a lot of warnings around them. Hmm. If I was going to go for drugs and she did, well, didn't have the, couldn't afford carefully, I'd probably start simple. I'd use something like candesartan or bisoprolol. Um, and then I might go on to nortriptyline if she has good sleep quality and no evidence of restless legs. Okay. Um, but that's where I'd be starting. I'd build up the drug slowly, get them to the best tolerated dose, cut it back a bit if they get to a dose that causes side effects, give them three months at that level, the best tolerated dose. If it's not worked, move on to phase out, move on to the next one. If it has worked, give it for a year, then very slowly phase out. And I always warn patients, if they're starting a drug or stopping a preventative drug from migraine, it's not uncommon to see a slight bit of worsening when you just change the dose, either going up on the drug, like you get, you know, when you start an antidepressant for depression, you get more depressed. You can see a bit more migraine when you're starting up. That's a good sign sometimes. So mm. just give it a few weeks and see, because if those side effects settle, it's worth carrying on elevating the dose. And likewise, when someone comes off a dose, it doesn't mean because they've got a few headaches that, it's, that they needed the drug. Just give it time. Let the dust settle. Often they'll come off it. And after those first two weeks, they'll be fine. And what do you regard as sort of success with preventatives? Like what sort of response rate would you be looking for? So I, I, first of all, it's not me that judges success. It's the patient that judges it. Um, and it's whether they... Find, I mean, migraine is, is, has, has a high impact. It's, it's, in women of this age group, it's thought to be the most disabled disorder known to mankind of any type 
you know, medical, surgical, psychiatric, it's the most disabling disorder. Uh, it's, that's what the World, World Health Organization ranks it. So, you know, what is success? Success is where I think the patient is able to fulfill their normal functions in life. That's the, that's the prime thing. Mm-hmm. That's the first goal is that they can look after children, they can look after themselves, they can go to work, they can earn money. And ideally, they can have some fun in life as well. Um, if they've still got some headache occasionally, that's not too bad, then they may see that as enough. The patient will tell you whether they've got enough benefits or not. But I, I generally think if you get patients at least 80% better, you know, very few patients will ask you for more than that. Yeah, okay. And, and um, I think you've really gone through the, the, the various preventative options and, and how you kind of approach that. Um, I guess there's a few medications that, that have been used historically. I'm just wondering whether you'd still use them, things like uh, uh, verapamil for, for headache or, or maybe some of the other medications like antipsychotics like olanzapine. Is that something you'd ever use as preventatives? I used, I used to use a bit of olanzapine when I really, really had nothing else to go to, but you cause a significant metabolic syndrome and weight gain. It's, it's not a drug I would go to. I mean, if I had someone acutely unwell in hospital who's tried everything else and they're suicidal with it, maybe I'd try it, but I don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't personally think Verapamil's ever had any, any case of being used. Um, personally, I don't think gabapentin or pregabalin have any role to play in the prevention of migraine other and tiny dose at night for restless legs, up to 50 milligrams of pregabalin or 75 milligrams of pregabalin, you know, 50 mm. in a woman, 75 in a man, just using it for eight months to turn off restless legs, stopping it for three months, going back if necessary. That's the only time I will use gabapentin or pregabalin. They've got a lot of problems with those drugs. They're not the benign things we thought they were. Pizotophen, uh, is that a medication you have much experience with? I think if you like being fat and sleepy, then it can be fine. It's got little. It's got little going for it. Occasionally, I will go for it if I've scraped the bottom of the barrel, um, and occasionally I'll go for it in cluster headache as well. But mm. I think it. And occasionally, I think anecdotally it works. But then, you know, forty percent of placebo patients in trials work. So mm. you know, I don't know whether pazotifen has a true effect. I mean, it was linked to methasergide and the same sort of potential mechanisms. And we don't have methasergide now. I mean, the drugs I like. Bisoprolol, candesartan, nortriptyline if they haven't got restless legs. If it's a man, I'll, I'll use sodium valproate occasionally. Can't use that in women under 55. Mm. Um, I really like, but you have to use it with a health warning, is flunarazine. Now, I tell patients that for each trial of these drugs, maybe 30 or 40% of them will get better on it. Flunarazine, I think, works where they've often failed many other things. The trouble with flunarazine is the side effect profile. One in 10 will get weight gain. They have to weigh themselves twice a week. One in 15 will get severe mood change that might start now or in six months or two years time. And you have to tell them that they have to stop the drug whenever they get mood change on flunarazine. And then very rarely they'll get a movement disorder, as you'll know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think flunarazine comes with health warnings. But if you give a lot of warning and and information and guidance, it can be an excellent medication. And yeah. I probably wouldn't use it. I probably would, would start with three drugs that are like bisoprolol, candesartan, nortriptyline, or the other drug I didn't mention was zonisamide. I use zonisamide in place of topiramate. Uh, I don't like topiramate because of the side effects. Zonisamide can give you the same side effects, but is less likely to do so. So it doses up to 50 twice a day. I think zonisamide is a reasonable option. You've got to warn them about glaucoma. You've got to warn them about kidney stones. 
Mm-hmm. And I've seen an, I've seen a fair share of patients kidney stones on on zanisamide and pyramate. So okay. you know we need to warn them about glaucoma and kidney stones before going for those medications. Excellent. So um, moving on to to case two. So this is perhaps something. Um, more similar to what you might see in clinic. So a 40 year old male who complains of headache. So he describes a daily headache that's been present for at least six months, possibly longer. The headache waxes and wanes in intensity. And he says it can be a background dull ache to a more intense headache that can occur two to three times a week, more like the migraines he suffered in his early twenties. Nothing seems to help with the pain despite taking regular paracetamol and codeine on most days. His GP prescribed him amitriptyline and propanolol, neither of which was effective. So how would you classify this headache uh, disorder? Okay, so um, basically he's had an escalated, well, he's had a headache for six months, possibly longer. Um, I presume that it's built up. I'd li- I like to see that a headache builds up in chronic migraine rather than suddenly starts at this level to make sure it's not a new daily persistent headache. But I'm assuming that this gradually became more severe, more frequent, longer lasting attacks. The gap started filling in, which is I think what he's saying about this background ache and the painkillers stopped working. You know, that's a very typical escalation from episodic to chronic migraine. So this is chronic migraine, but you can't really label him purely as chronic migraine because he has significant medication and caffeine overuse. Mm-hmm. We don't know if it's chicken and egg, but given that he, he presented with a headache disorder and has been taking these painkillers, I presume that, the, that the, the initiating factor was the headache disorders. I presume he started with migraine, it became frequent. And as mentioned previously in the podcast, the use of, you know, the the increasing frequency of attacks is a marker for, is a risk factor for um, developing chronic migraine, but so is the use of acute, you know, acute attack medications as a risk factor for developing chronic migraine. And that's what he's got here. Mm. Um, the fact that he hasn't responded to amitriptyline and propranolol doesn't surprise me. You know, it's, it's as if he's got into his nice sports car and he's tried to drive, but he's not got very far because his wheel locks are still on. You're not going to get anywhere when in that situation, it's like, you know, riding a bike with someone sticking a spoke through the wheels. You know, it just, you're not, there's no, it's no point pedaling harder. You need to actually get rid of the problem that's the sticking point. Um, How would you approach the management of this, this patient? Yeah. What would you advise? You lay down a foundation of lifestyle. You warn him he's going to get worse. You stop all the, all the paracetamol, all the codeine. If he's on maybe more than two tablets of codeine a day, I might bring that down slowly but I would stop the paracetamol abruptly. I would check his caffeine intake and I would stop all caffeine abruptly. I would tell him it's a long-term plan. It's not just for now. I would tell him that painkillers are for emergencies only. You've got five red boxes on the wall, break glass in case of emergency. You know, you might use a box around the time of an, of an operation. Maybe, you know, you're, you're going to a family wedding or a funeral or, you know, it's the first time in 19 years you're allowed to fly because COVID restrictions have been lifted and you're actually able to fly and you want to get to the airport and you've got a migraine, of course you're going to take painkillers on those days, but it should be five times a year for emergencies only, five bouts. Mm -hmm. I want him to be drinking lots of fluid, eating regular meals, going to bed and getting up at the same time each day. Once he's done that lifestyle management, I want to see if he still has restless legs, um, because I bet you he's got restless legs with this, but I bet you also there's a 60% chance it will have gone just by doing that lifestyle. If he has got restless legs, I'll give him a very low dose of pregabalin, as mentioned, for eight months. And then I will see what his headache's like. If he's still got a headache, and, and I say if, because 40% of people will be very much better now, uh, especially if you've given it a month or two with that lifestyle in place. If he's still got significant headache, we could revisit amitriptyline or propranolol if he tolerated them well. Mm-hmm. 
is he going to like you for that? No, he's not going to really like you because he said, oh, I've tried those and it's hard to explain it. So I would probably go slightly differently and I would probably start a drug like Candesartan. Um, I might go for bisoprolol if panolol wasn't very well tolerated or just because it's a, a better tolerated drug that you can get a bit higher. If he's got no restless legs and had no restless legs and he sleeps well, I would give maybe nortriptyline, eplimchrono or flunarazine uh, if there's no mood disturbance. I wouldn't give it to someone who was depressed. I wouldn't rule out the possibilities of drugs like zanisamide as well. Zanisamide might be a fairly good early option. So maybe, maybe Kansasartan first line, zanisamide second line, bisoprolol third line. Mm-hmm. I'll get into the daily headache diary. And that's really important. And again, the daily headache diaries, I think there's a link to it in the in my comprehensive migraine guide there. You can get the diaries by just going on the Walton Centre and looking under headache. You want, him, you want him to basically say whether he's headache free, whether he's got a mild day, a moderate day or a severe day each day. And just tick, that's all you want in the diary. Um, maybe if he changes his dose of medication or gets side effects, it's worth noting that. Mm-hmm. If you had no response to at least three preventative trials for at least three months each, and he's not winning, then you're going to look at one of these sort of, sort of more significant agents. Personally, these days, I would go for CGRP monoclonal antibody next, um, although there is a debate to be had there, a bit more costly than Botox, um, but with the ability to provide them from services, you know, services are struggling to try and keep up with demand here, and you have to look at what you can physically do. Botox would also be a very reasonable idea. And again, I wouldn't rule out him using carefully if he preferred a non-drug option mm-hmm. uh, to all of that, you know, right at the beginning. And that's a very reasonable thing to do. Um, Excellent. I mean, we can go further, but I think you might want to... Yeah, no, no well, that brings us nicely onto the, the third and final case, really, which is a 29-year-old female who's referred to the clinic, otherwise fit and well, and she reports headache over a number of years that have become increasingly problematic over the last two years. So she describes frequent headaches that are moderate to severe in intensity, typically last a couple of days, um, she feels sick with them. She feels sensitive to light. She'll typically go and try and lie down in a dark room. After seeing the GP previously, he diagnosed migraine and advised her to stop taking all analgesics, which she's now done. And she's also cut back on the use of caffeinated drinks and is following all other lifestyle measures. She's also trialed propanolol, topiramate, and also amitriptyline, but had no significant change with the headaches. She keeps a headache diary. You see that on average, she gets 20 headache days a month, majority of which are migraines. And on non-headache days, she does she reports no symptoms at all. So she does get crystal clear headache-free days. Um, she's keen to discuss further management options with you, in particular, uh, some of the uh, things that her friends have told her about, which is Botox for migraine or some of the newer drugs that um, she's read about in the news. So um, how would you classify okay. her headache syndrome? I mean, she sounds quite similar to what you'd hope the guy previously might, might get to if he can come off the caffeinated... Uh, drinks and, and medications maybe yes yeah I, I will hope he doesn't get to you hope he actually gets a response before he gets here but um yeah so she's she's done very well with the lifestyle and i presume i'm going to change cut back on use of caffeine to completely cut out caffeine because i think that's what you meant hmm. so considering that she's got really good lifestyle in place and she's she's tried three drugs um i think the first thing i want to do is i just want to revisit the diagnosis i want to take her history properly i want to make absolutely certain there's nothing else going on no raised or reduced um, pressure, CSF pressure. But as you say, she's got crystal clear headache three days, 10 days a month. So it's highly unlikely we're missing anything um, here. Some people will scan, some people won't scan in that situation. Um, I probably wouldn't scan if I'm happy with the story of that and I'm happy that she's got crystal clear days. 
he needs her to keep on with the diary. I think there's little point carrying on with those preventative drugs that she's tried, assuming that she's had a reasonable trial of all of them. I'd check that she's got up to the best tolerated dose and had it for at least three months each uh, to see if they worked. Then I would discuss, I think, I think CGRP, monoclonal antibodies and Botox would be good options as a next, next step. Um, they're safe to the best of our knowledge. They're, they're very effective. They're fairly easy to use. It's a, a nice simplicity about patients having a once a month injection that has a similar side effect profile to placebo as the CGRP antibodies, maybe a little bit more constipation, maybe a little bit of redness around the injection sites. I, I, you know, but that's about it. I want to check that she hasn't got a history of ischemic heart disease or stroke, because I wouldn't give it to someone in that situation. I want her GP to manage her um, and measure her blood pressure twice a year while she's on the CGRP monoclonal antibodies, because there's a theoretical risk for in, in sort of uncontrolled hypertension. CGRP receptors are found in the heart as well as the brain. So I would, um, I would think of a CGRP monoclonal antibody. And if we're going to do that, we're going to know very quickly if it's worked. We're going to give her three injections to take one a month. We'll know typically in that first month whether it's going to work. And certainly by the second month, we'll know. So, you know, as soon as she's had the third injection, we will get her to send her diaries in. If it's, if it's better, we'll stay on that. If it's not better, we'll offer her Botox. Unless, of course, she decides to go for Botox in the first case, which is her, her, her right. But most people would rather have a single injection than... Uh, you know, once a month and 31 injections every three months. Um, but, you know, both drugs work extremely effectively. And to be fair, both drugs work differently in different people. So you can get someone who's who's not responded to one, but who responds really well to the other. And a bit like the triptans, you know, people respond to different triptans differently. Some people respond to different CGRP monoclonal antibodies differently. So, you know, if she failed the first CGRP monoclonal antibody, we might go on to a second or third one. Mm. And I think that's very reasonable. NICE doesn't want us to do that if they've had galcanesumab uh, or emgality, but the BASH statement suggests that they think that is a reasonable thing to do clinically. And I think we need to do what's right clinically for patients. Mm. Um, you know, we have to bear in mind the cost of things and maybe going for some of the cheaper antibodies would be a good idea. Um, there's a whole, whole discussion to be had elsewhere about that. Mm. Um, if she hasn't responded to CGRP monoclonal antibodies, at least two trials of different ones or Botox, um, and I would re-explore re the history again, and I'd make sure that we've, we've ruled out any metabolic things. I'd make sure she's not got a sleep disorder, a pituitary adenoma, make sure she's not got a, a, an intracranial pressure problem or carbon monoxide poisoning, all the things we look at. If I'm satisfied it's still chronic migraine, then I would think about bringing her into hospital for an infusion of intravenous dihydrogotamine for a week. And that can be extremely effective. Um, and then I think we're back down to, has she tried the uh, non-invasive nerve stimulators like carefully? You could bring that up with her sooner if you wanted to. Um, have we looked at the other scraping the barrel drugs? But I don't, maybe flunarazine is not scraping the barrel. Um, and she's not tried candesartan yet. She's not tried zinisamide. Um, venlafaxine is on the list as a, as a trialed headache preventative drug that can work. I think, you know, there's still a number of oral drugs that we come back to if we're not winning. But I would go for something fairly big bucks. I would, I would agree with her, you know, which do you want? Botox or monoclonal antibodies? Let's go for it. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for going through that with us. That's, um, it's a really common condition that I think all trainees will see at some point and, and all medical students and, and non-neurologists should be 
aware of as well. Um, I'll put you on the spot now and just ask, are there kind of any top tips you have for uh, people listening about how you feel uh, best to approach the diagnosis of migraine? Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing is you can never take a detailed enough history. Spend time with the patient the first time, because once you've done that, you can create a list of a sequence of events and, and particular strategies that you can outline with the patient. You can write them down in the letter to the GP and the patient. So it's really important that the patient has a, has a, a, has a very clear idea of where they're going. Make the patient realize you know what's going on. Ask them those extra questions about the premonitory phase of their attacks. Ask them the questions about cranial autonomic disturbance. Ask them the non-headache features of chronic migraine. If you can get them realizing you've asked them all that was about them, then they will jump through the hoops for you. They will stop the painkillers. They will stop the caffeine. They will try drugs. They will have painful injections because they know you know what you're talking about and they know you've seen it before and you recognize it. And if you hear something from a patient that sounds interesting, ask other patients, do they get it? Build up. Most of the things we've talked about today, I haven't read from textbooks, I haven't found from literature, I've got this from patients. And most of all these other symptoms that I talk about, I've got because patients have told me and I've asked other patients. So get interested in your patients. And the more interested in you, are, you are in them and the more invested you are in them, the better results you will get, especially if you, if you stick to some simple rules. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, that's a great way to finish the podcast. So thanks very much. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Oh, thanks ever so much, John. Thanks. thanks. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropopcases.co.uk. Thank you.